We're very happy to have Professor Robert Thurman of Columbia on. He's going to speak to us about the Dalai Lama, who is his close friend, and it's obviously his tremendous knowledge of Tibet. Um, he speaks Tibetan, he's immersed himself in the culture, he's been teaching for almost 50 years, first at Amherst, then at Columbia, where he is now. He's the founder of Tibet House. He's, of course, Uma Thurman's father. Um, he's had a very interesting life. Just a brief history of Tibet. Um, the religion the, the, um, the religion of Buddhism was brought to Tibet somewhere between the 8th and the 10th century. Um, at one point, the Mongols controlled both China and Tibet, and they had the, the Yuan dynasty, Y-U-A-N. Then there was a, 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 the Ming dynasty. is more of an association the Chinese had over Tibet. And then there was a decline in the last uh, 300 years before communism in the Manchus. Then China was, Tibet was really free of any Chinese influence for about 40 years between the um, Chinese Republic under um, Chiang Kai-shek and um, then the, before Mao took over and invaded. And um, it was really sort of a separate country and was clearly independent from any kind of control of the Chinese. But that's a brief history of the country. And now we're going to discuss uh, Buddhism, how Buddhism is different in um, Tibet, and um, uh, sort of practices that all of us could take and to be interested in uh, the religion. Also, um, Tibet House has a benefit on March 3rd. You can go to the Tibet House website to learn about that and, and go to the benefit, which I've been to in prior years and is wonderful. And without further ado, here's Professor Thurman. And Professor Thurman, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the program today. My pleasure. Thank you. I just want to ask you um, briefly about uh, your own background. I believe you went to um, Exeter, and then you went to Harvard, and you grew up in Manhattan. Is, is that correct? Yes. Actually, in the city, I went to St. Bernard's before that. That's great. Um, top schools, of course. And you had an, an accident, which I think w was a profound effect upon your life. Which, did that help you lead you to Buddhism? Was that a fair to say? Uh, yes, it did. Well, I was already trending toward Buddhism and that sort of thing. And, um, but uh, yoga and Buddhism and so on. And uh, the, I lost an eye in a garage accident, which saved my life, I think, actually, because I, I was racing motorcycles and cars, and I could easily lost the entire thing. <laughs> and just had this one accident, and that gave me the shock of impermanence and made me decide to take life a little more seriously. So I decided instead of just reading like a dilettante in these... Uh, consciousness raising fields let's say i should really get into it and that, that was at 20 years of age so that was really great for me it was lucky otherwise i probably would have gone into something more conventional and then freaked out at around 40 <laughs> <laughs> you said i think you said like a wasp diplomat or something like that something like that right and then you became what the first one of the first monks in the united states to learn um, to uh yeah well i think there have been monks i mean they of course they've been catholic monks forever but um although not so many actually because it's been mainly a protestant ethos in the u.s but um uh i was the first american ordained as a tibetan buddhist monk by the dalai lama that's that's sort of the thing uh which i insisted upon after about two years of study two and a half years of study Although my old original teacher, a Mongolian, had elder uh, teacher, had told me that I should have formally be a monk, that I was fine to live like one as I was doing, but that I needn't formally do it because my karma, he predicted, was different. I would have a romantic karma in the future, and that's not allowed if you're a monk. <laughs> and okay. he was right, and I was wrong to stubbornly insist. And the Dalai Lama was just kindly followed my insistence. So he didn't really, at that time he was young, he didn't really know about Western culture, American society, what it was like, how there was really no support for being a monk, really. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just going to take a stab at uh, Buddhism and just ask you to please correct me. I think you define Buddhism as like taking small steps. You mentioned the movie, I think, What About Bob? You'd like Bill Murray, and he said uh, baby oh, steps. Oh, yes. Baby steps. So talk about you know, taking small steps, working on conquering ourselves. You said conquering ourselves versus conquering others. And I think you mentioned Tibet, of course, that they used to conquer other people. They had parts of China. Then they sort of imported Buddhism, and they changed their whole philosophy. And so you said it's more than just like meditating one hour a day, but it's like riding, yes. the riding the wave in a philosophy. Could you just expand on that? Yes, well, actually my slogan, really nutshell slogan, is that Buddhism is realism. And uh, it involves learning that we are unrealistic in, the, in our normal, conventional, conditioned, educated minds, 
and uh, we need to become more realistic by by intensifying our critical intelligence and our critical wisdom and and uh, and so when they say wisdom you know many buddhist writers have written all of buddhism is about wisdom because it is wisdom that overcomes the exaggerated ego habit and the unrealistic uh, personality structure that makes being so su- is the root of all suffering and um and so um I, uh, I I really liked that, and, uh, and I connected to that realism. However, in the process of doing so, it's a matter of little tiny increments, like a process of education, like learning a language, or like um, you know learning any skill. You know, you bit by bit, you practice your scales on the piano, you learn a few vocabulary terms every day, cumulatively, and you re- review what you learned before, and then gradually you become capable of even just effortlessly speaking. But uh, bit by bit is is the watchword, and so in a way that that kind of a slogan or that kind of a of a nutshell critiques two misunderstandings, and one of them is that enlightenment is some sort of sudden thing that just ever you like falling off a log that happens to a few people, and uh, that's one misunderstanding, and it's like a a, a burst, sudden burst that just happens randomly for whatever. And the other misunderstanding is that uh, Buddhism and enlightenment is just shutting your mind off and meditating in a way where you just don't think about anything, and that once you achieve a state of non-thinking, you're enlightened. And both of those are totally wrong. And uh, meditation for Buddhism is an important tool, of course, to deepen your wisdom. But wisdom comes from learning and from critical thinking and finally, meditation then empowers the insights developed from critical thinking and makes them go into the unconscious and change your deep inner structure of your mind. And, um, and, uh, but without the learning, meditation will not do that. Meditation will just sort of deprive you, actually, of your sharp intellectual acuity and disable you from discovering wh- where you're, you're miswired, where you're confused, you know. Because you'll get a wrong thinking when you shut down your thinking that you've achieved something and you've, you're free from negative thinking, but actually it just pops back up when you stop shutting it down. So it doesn't help that much, actually. It's kind of a, it can be a trap that people get into when Buddhism is wrongly taught that way. Is it, is it fair to say that you yourself think the Dalai Lama has reached enlightenment, but you don't think you reached that point? I think I heard you say that. Yeah, well, I can't be sure that he has fully because I haven't fully. But he's definitely, I think, way ahead, and has definitely way ahead of where he was when I first met him in his 20s, when I was in my 20s, you know, 60 years, almost 60 years ago now. So he's way ahead of that. And I feel he's really reached uh, reached it, you know, himself in this life. Maybe he had the inkling of it from previous lives, but apparently you have to recover it, and he certainly has learned to walk his talk 100%. I myself do not pretend to or claim full enlightenment. I certainly am better than I was. I've improved. Headed, I think, in the right direction and gotten close enough, maybe, to feel sure that I will get so, will get enlightened at a certain point, which is a kind of consolation for me. And, uh, but I just don't, I think it's a, actually in Buddhism, it's kind of trap. Another kind of trap is thinking you're enlightened. And, um, actually, Buddha doesn't even think he's enlightened. He knows it by figure. He can figure it out when he remembers the definition of his state of mind. You could say, but he doesn't sit around thinking, "I'm enlightened. I'm better than others. I'm this and that." Doesn't think that. Um, it has no such habitual thought of "I, I, I" like that, you know. But can organize himself at thinking "I." It's not that he's paralyzed from thinking, but he's he's not trapped in it. And there's a lot of disasters in the landscape of Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, uh, Judaism, all the religions when they, in their, in Islam, when they get in the contemplative side of things, that people have altered states experiences, some extraordinary experience, and then they come back to their habitual self from that experience, but then they think, oh, that was enlightenment, so now I'm enlightened. And then they start acting, uh, ego, egotistically. Like, because I'm enlightened, I'm superior to my students, they should serve me, or people should respect me in a certain way, they become narcissistic in a stupid way, actually, <laughs> and 
we have cults and problems like that, you know. One of the things that, that you said that I thought was interesting, I think you said that we had a view that Asian civilizations um, were not advanced as us, but in reality they might have been more advanced than us, at least spiritually, but we just, we looked down upon them, and part of that was like the British mindset of conquering, or the French, these European conquerors, these Asian civilizations, when in reality, right. and so you, you, you believe, could you just expand upon that too? They were Well, I do, and, and uh, I think, you know, for example... If you live on a certain block, and there's a mafia guy on the block, and he goes around terrorizing everybody and makes them pay protection racket to him, we're all afraid of him, and he's more he can beat us up or shoot us or whatever, so we might pay him off. Uh, but we and, and in that sense, respect him out of fear. But no one would think he was more enlightened. People would think he was he was annoying, right. and he was not more advanced, just more brutal, and. Um, so, uh, because we are still living in a militaristic society with this huge Pentagon and huge military budget, and we still wrongly think we can solve everything by some kind of military, left over from colonialism, let's say, and we are a little colonialistic economically in many respects still, because of that, we kind of think advancement means mechanical military material power to dominate. And uh, it, when, we, when we realize that people who are doing the dominating are still, and actually realize they're still unhappy, they're not satisfied, the human beings have a moral sensitivity which is innate to the human life form, and they, and they feel bad really being nasty and killing and torturing and suppressing and making people starve and things like that. They don't feel good about it. And so then they begin to think about there's some kind of enlightenment which which is uh, the way to be, and and that's why great the the Asian cultures, which were more rich on, in the in the landscape of Eurasia, the Asian cultures were far more rich than Europe Europe was, or the Middle East, which was more desert, and Europe was uh, was less. Uh, there were no no big Ganges rivers, you know, and the Rhine was there in Europe, etc. But it was not quite as didn't have a huge floodplain like the Nile or the or the or the Tigris and Euphrates or the Ganges or the Yellow River in China, the Yangtze. So Asians were Asians were more rich. So and they conquered a lot in their past, and uh, they repelled Alexander the Great, for example, and so on. And they were they were more powerful. But then they realized, therefore, they realized that power and wealth and domination doesn't make you happy by itself. And so then they developed higher skills of living and a higher enlightenment, and this made them more gentle, actually, and therefore more vulnerable. And so then the more, the more rough people from the West came and conquered them, the, first the Muslims and then the Christians, and uh, the colonialists, you know, and, so, and of course then they think they're superior because they conquered. But actually the ones who got conquered were, were probably superior. Surely they were superior, actually, in things like the arts and the, and the spiritual technical teachings. Not just, not that they had better religions. All religions are good in some way, but they had more technical psychologies going along with their spiritual traditions. And therefore they were capable of, people were, were assisted more in being uh, in, in using the, the teachings of the great founders of being loving and kind and patient and tolerant and nonviolent, which is what Jesus and, and Muhammad and all of them basically said, and, uh, the, and Moses and so on. And uh, so the methods of doing that, not just telling you to do it, but the methods of doing that, uh, were more, are more advanced in those Asian, from those Asian cultures. And, uh, and that's what now is beginning to benefit the West. Because now we're, we've been at the station where we stood astride of the planet after World War II. Before that, the British Empire was astride of it, and the French were hanging in there, Portuguese, Spanish, you know, et cetera. But all of them were not really satisfied ever with all of that. And they still had a lot of internal conflicts and miseries and things, and even developed theories that life is only, you have to be resigned to the misery, and then God will reward you later if you're a theist. <laughs> or if you're a nihilist, you'll just cease to exist. So it's like anesthesia, you know? Right. So the thing is, uh, the, these Asian people were more advanced in these, these inner technical, psychological, scientific ways, and that's what's now coming to our benefit. So that, that's how I would put it. And that's a hard sell. You know, I can't tell you how many students in my classes over 50 years of teaching 
Uh, we're very interested in um, meditational, psychological, philosophical teachings. But as you suggested that maybe the plumbing was better in ancient India, <laughs> you got a very annoyed look. Right. You know? And uh, and uh, certainly they, were, they didn't have guns and rifles like us and all that, you know. Can I just um, review the history of, of Tibetan Buddhism? Is it... I think what I read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that obviously the, the Manchus conquered China something like right. a thousand years ago. Then there was the Ming Dynasty, then the, then the Manchus. And is it was it fair to say there was an association between Tibet and China under the Wan Dynasty, and then a little bit under the Ming, and not as much under the Manchus? It wasn't really so uh, much— No, no, various, no it was various, it's always been quite strong, the relationship of Tibet with China. But about 600, 500 of the common era, Tibet conquered China, actually, briefly. The lucky thing about T- Tibet, from the point of view of its frightened neighbors, was the Tibetans liked living at high altitudes, so they didn't stay on top of you when they came and conquered you. They just looted and pillaged and then rode away, which was very lucky. And uh, that's about, you know, from si- around 600, right? That's like 1,400 years ago. And uh, then Buddhism came to Tibet after that, and then they became more peaceful and gentle, and they gave up their empire. And uh, then they were very influential and interactive with China during the Tang Dynasty, around 600 to 900, and, and less, a little bit less so in the Song Dynasty. Uh, but uh, then the Mongols conquered China around in the 12th, 11th, 10th, 11th and 12th centuries, and uh, the Mongols were then calmed down by the Tibetans, which the Chinese appreciated. And they got them not to kill so many people, and they got them off shamanism and into into Buddhism. And then the Ming Dynasty, then the Mongols wandered back into Central Asia, and their, all their Western conquests, its empire kind of fragmented by, you know, by their own competitiveness with each other. And uh, then... Uh, and then the the Ming came in, and then the Ming were very interested and supportive of Tibet. They, as that was the Chinese dynasty, not a conquered conquest dynasty. And then the Manchus also had a connection with Tibetan Buddhism. By then, the Mongols also, but then the Manchus, nevertheless, not strong enough, and they conquered China rather oppressively. But eventually, they became more gentle, and then they worked with the Tibetans to finally get the Mongolians to calm down, and then they became gentle. So the impact of Buddhism in Central Asia was, starting from India, was that when Buddhism reaches, even starting from Buddha's time, when Buddhism becomes a major service to a community or a nation, that nation tends toward demilitarization and has a higher level of inner culture and satisfaction in its people, but tends to become vulnerable to conquest by other ones who are less freaked out, who are, who are less peaceful and more freaked out, and who also hanker after the, the culture that has been developed by the more peaceful people. And that's been a cycle in history until today. And today we're in a situation, though, where therefore Buddhism's service is ready to be offered in general, not as a religious service, as you could say a scientific psychological service, to help all these highly armed nations, superpower, not to go into superpower conflict, which will destroy everyone. There'll be no winner of it. And instead, turn toward vulnerability. But now it will be mutual vulnerability, and I don't think there's anyone left to come up with, like, a Mongolian empire today. (laughs) Probably the Chinese... Some factions in the Chinese communists think that they're going to be the new empire. But, but on the other hand, China had Buddhism, and there's a strong rebirth of Buddhism. Of wealthy Chinese people, Chinese, the minority of people in China who have become wealthy, and who now know that wealth and domination doesn't make them happy, but they have to keep a low profile because the communists don't like what they think of as religion. But this is not because of Buddhism as a religion only. It's because of Buddhism as this kind of technical, uh, human, educational skill that Buddhism service, that Buddhism can offer to every, everyone without changing their religion even. And uh, that's, what it, that's what it has done in history. So that's, that's a sort of a nutshell. Okay. And in my theory, therefore, I have a, I have a slogan again that I say, uh, that evolved with me over my 50 years of teaching, which is I say we have to shift from mad to mud, from mutual assured destruction, which is where the conquest of others' habit has gotten the human beings on this planet, 
and that means everybody will be destroyed <laughs> eventually. <laughs> right. it's, it's meant to be a, a symbol of deterrence, but obviously, you know, when someone seems to lose under deterrence, like the Russians just did, then they get where well, they want to start to conquer again, you know. And uh, so that's not going to work in the long run. So we shift from mad, mutual assured deterrence, to mud, which is mutual unilateral disarmament. Got it. And that's and that and that's with the skill in doing. I mean, Christians, Jesus said, you know, don't hate your enemy, and Moses, in a way, said, don't just an eye for an eye is good enough. Don't kill the person if you if they did something harmful to you, you know, just just do something just with them, etc. And the Hindus have the same theory. Everybody does. Confucians also, and in China and. Um, and so it's not like a, it's not a matter of, of a new religion saving us, but it's a matter of a better psychological science, understanding human nature better, and providing the educational methods of ha- having a mass of people become less violent, Professor Thurman, and less egotistical, and then societies, the world society, can function smoothly and prosperity for everyone, and respect of women, so there's no overpopulation problem. And uh, and that's we can easily do that now. May I just ask if you, we if we are calm enough and self controlled enough? May I just ask you one question about pre China sure. conquering Tibet? I, you know, obviously Heinrich Herrera. I'm sure you read his book Seven Years in Tibet. Yeah, sure, I knew him personally very well. Oh, really? Okay. He said in in that book, I believe that they that, that when the Dalai, Lama, I believe Tibetan Buddhism is different from other Buddhism in the sense that they believe in reincarnation. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, yes and no. All Buddhists believe in reincarnation, actually. And actually Hindus and actually the majority of the world's people believe that after death there's some, you know, Christians, pious Christians believe in re- reincarnation, one reincarnation in heaven or hell, but they all believe that there's continuum after death. And all Buddhists believe in that, and, and believe in that in the form in which you take individual animal lives, either human or other animals, going going forward. And they, they don't look forward to unpleasant ones, therefore, and therefore they try to use human life in a positive way. So they all do. But what Harrer meant, and which is where he's correct, is that the Tibetans are the only ones who developed a formal reincarnation institution in the sense that they felt they had certain people who they felt were so adept in their understanding of the processes of life and death and rebirth and the between state, of the, the bardo state or the between state, between death and rebirth, that they could consciously take rebirth in a particular family, in a particular town, in a particular country, or whatever they, wherever they wanted, or in a particular form. And so, therefore, they, they began from the 13th, not at the beginning of Tibetan Buddhism, but from the 13th century, they began to find, you know, little kids would pop up, who would say, well, I'm not blah, blah, you know, I'm actually the reincarnation of Abraham Lincoln, the equivalent of, you know, like some great Lama teacher, who Socrates, you know. And then people would say, yes, yeah, sure, kid, you know. But then they would show they had the skills, and they would recognize the people that the previous life had known. And so then people started to believe them, and then that developed into an institution, so that it was actually a very good way of, of keeping up with your work. You know, if you had students and you hadn't finished teaching them, and you died, then you would be reborn, and then but, they'd find you again, then you could continue teaching them you, if they still needed it. You know? one, one so that's what, a formal institution, and some, some Mongolian Buddhists adopted that from the Tibetans, and they had reincarnations eventually, and some of them didn't, the ones who were more warlike didn't, because what, what that institution, the formal institution did in Tibet, was it completed the process of demilitarization, because that the Buddhists tend to inflict on countries, and it completed it in the Tibetan case, and eventually part of the Mongolian case, because you have a leadership, a type of leadership, you know, a particular same great teacher becomes born life after life, like Woodrow Wilson keeps being born, and he says, I'm Woodrow Wilson, so I should be president again, and then you don't have a dynastic family, you know, that keeps an army but- to keep its power that is the usual form of Asian governance. But, Matthew, one thing and you, ha- you have instead a monastic uh, form of, of governance, monastic bureaucracy, and therefore most of the manpower of a country goes into education in monastic universities, 
and you get you get no war and you get no army basically. Well, you eventually th- have no, no you know like only token army. One thing Herrera, so that, Herrera that's said. An interesting institution. Mm-hmm. One thing he said. I think he said that they were careful when they picked the Dalai Lama not to get it for one of the one of the nobility classes, but to pick someone who wasn't in the nobility in Tibet. Is, is that correct? Yes. Well, of course, and you can if you. If you don't believe in reincarnation, you would say that the, the people who were picking the people wisely did that. Sometimes. Sometimes they pick from aristocratic families where, where we, one could think maybe it was just, one could be cynical about it. They, you know, they said the Junior Rockefeller is an incarnation, then he brought the family fortune into the monastery. That was a corruption that even as, early, as late as early as the 16th century, people were writing about, let's be very careful about our selection process. But uh, the Tibetans believed that the lamas, them, the, the, the incarnate lamas themselves, they picked virtuous lower-class families uh, on purpose to raise that family and to give people the view that anyone at any level of society could be, become a high lama. You know, a lama could pick their family, you know, could pick their mom to be reborn in her womb. And uh, so they think that's a conscious choice on the part of the reincarnating being, not just on the part of the com- committee that found the reincarnating being. And Professor and, uh, and, I, and I, I, I jokingly say it's the equivalent of, like, log cabin to White House, you know. <laughs> also, I wanted to ask you, one of the things you said that I thought was quite interesting, you said that people always, you said to me, prove, we're talking about now life after death, you said to me, prove to me that there is nothing. What evidence that there is nothing? Because you said you can't destroy energy, so you don't accept the right. idea of nothing forms from nothing, right? Could you just expand upon right. that? Right, yes. Well, that's that's my favorite thing, because I was, I found my life very much changed when I uh, found strong scientific evidence of former and future lives, I remembered something of my previous lives eventually, and logically I saw it as logical, sort of along the law, uh, the lines of the second law of thermodynamics, you know, that no energy can ever be destroyed, which is a, a modern materialistic science theory, uh, a kind of a law actually of nature, it's like, uh, that no energy can be destroyed, it just changes form. And, uh, and then the mental energy of minds, of people, is a kind of very subtle energy, as we know, because we use our minds, we think with our mind, we perceive, we recognize things with our mind, and we create things with our mind. And we know that, so it, therefore it's an activity, therefore it has energy, although it's very, very subtle. But um, therefore, why should that be the one energy of consciousness that is destroyed at death uh, and goes to nothing, so that your consciousness then, which has always been consciousness of something, becomes nothing? When you sleep, of course, you feel when you fall asleep, you, or when you're knocked out in an accident, or something, when you bang your head, you feel for a moment that you have no consciousness. But in a way, all you really have consciousness of is the threshold of that state, and then you come back or you dream while you're in that. So in other words, your mind is still continuing, and you wake up the next morning. So even though it seems relative to day, waking experience that there's a state of unconsciousness, actually you're not completely unconscious. So... Um, uh, light sleepers will certainly tell you that. And so, um, so the theory of materialistic science, that they don't have to take account of the mind as a force in nature, and everything, there's an objective world and they're out there that they're going to measure, and that's how they're going to control all reality. The dream of science, materialistic science is completely based on a blind faith theory that cannot ever have evidence because no one is ever going to find that nothing that a person goes to. And I make a joke when I debate with scientists, and I say, did Carl Sagan show up to, uh, to you, even in your dream, and tell you, hey, man, it's cool, I don't exist. <laughs> right. Obviously not, and not only didn't he, but never would, if your theory is correct. And therefore, you can never validate your theory. It's a, it's a dogmatic theory, therefore, and believing in it is blind faith. It's like I believe if I just step off this thing, I'll fly. You know, it's, it's uh, completely, it's actually dangerous to you not to, not to take account of it. And furthermore, Western science, materialistic science in 1926 with the Copenhagen, Copenhagen Declaration, as it's called. Niels Bohr and Heisenberg. Uh, showed and proved that there is a stage of subtlety of material energies where you reach 
where you cannot have pure objectivity because you're active observing a, 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 a material event changes the event. So therefore, the mind is mixed, subjectivity is mixed with the objectivity there. So this idea of absolute material objectivity that we're going to measure and control is a, is a false dogma also. Okay. But, but Einstein wouldn't accept it. Remember the famous God does not play dice thing that he said? That meant that he, he was going to still find the theory that would match reality perfectly so we could have total control of it, which he never was able to do, and no one since has been able to do. And nor will they. According to Buddha's scientific prediction, this won't happen, you know. You know, the enlightenment even doesn't mean the absolute control of reality. But it means that when you know more about it, and you know more about the nature of your mind's energy in interacting with your, with what seems to be a reality outside, you have the most competent interaction with it, even though it's not omnipotent. What? What one of the really funny things you mentioned? You talked about how if we have bad karma, do bad things, we could be reborn. For example, as an elephant, you talked about like an elephant having sex and Mrs. Elephant running away and trampling on a tree, and another <laughs> elephant tracing her. You talked about how lions don't have any foreplay. I mean, obviously, it's not a lot of fun to be that versus what we are today. So my question was, as far as bad karma and how we come back as, what determines that? I mean, it, if there's no omnipotent God that says you become right, a lion, and you, no, and no, and no controlling and, fate. Right, Right. So, 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 True, but there is the process of causation. Now, you know, for example, you put your pot of water on the on the stove and it gets hot. So when we say, well, what causes the heat? Hot. It's the water to get hot. Well, the heat that's applied to it, right? Right. So the the karma law is a biological law, actually, of causality. And for example, if you if you as a human, for example, if you're very violent by habit, you know, you pump up. You go join army, you do military training, you do Aikido, you do judo, karate, you become a great swordsman, you kill a lot of people, then, you know, you sort of never feel comfortable if you don't have your sword and your armor on, because their relatives of the people you killed might be sneaking up on you, Right. And you start to get more and more paranoid. So you're just changing the shape of your mind as a human, because you remain human during your life, but then, if after you die... When your emotions are sort of shaping your embodiment in a dream state, where your emotion can make you have a certain form, you know, without, because you don't have a stable material body that's semi-stable material body. As you get older, you realize it's not that stable. But anyway, you have a semi-stable one. I mean, you don't have that in a dream. So then you might think that it would be better to be reborn as an animal that has a big sword growing out of its nose with a very armored skin like a rhinoceros and very heavy and powerful and really unassailable even by lions or anybody and you of course you wouldn't imagine some guy with a 30 or 6 but you would you would uh, you know you and you would gravitate toward that biological form in the state where you're choosing where your continuum is you know constantly changing continuum has lost the power of speech and has lost the knowledge of what a human was like you because such a you know so you're so brutalized by violence during your human life, so you would gravitate toward a negative a form that would be less advantageous than the human form. I see because it would seem to you to be better equipped for the interacting with the universe in a violent manner. If you follow me. I see. So so that's that's the, it's sort of that's a, I'm I'm sort of trying to evoke a picture for you of how such a impersonal and not controlled by any outside force, but a kind of impersonal causal process would create the migration between species and between life forms. And the Buddhists are very, uh, you know, in a religious way, they kind of frighten people like the Christians and Muslims do that, you know, they could really reach hell or they could have a really horrible future life. The Buddhists say, well, it would be awful to be a cockroach or, you know, some kind of deer being eaten by lions, you know, and they, they sort of scare you that it's easy for that to happen after you die. But I think more, if you think more carefully about the biology of karma, karmic biology, I think it's more difficult because even though you might have been a rough swordsman, as a human being, you think that female, a male, you think that females are beautiful. As a female human being, you admire males. And so in that between state, your, your lust actually is going to move you toward 
a physical form that is similar to the one that you had in the previous life, I think. And you're going to end up in a womb of a human female, more likely, even though maybe you'll want to be born uh, in a human female who is a weightlifter or an Amazon warrior or something, if you were a big warrior in a previous life. You, know, you want to gravitate toward the type of human that you were. So I think it's pretty hard to be fall in love with a female rhinoceros when you're a human. I don't think you can quite <laughs> visualize. It's very hard to visualize. <laughs> right. And so, so, so that's why in Tibet, and I assume in other Buddhist countries, they protect every living creature. When they build, an, when they build a dam, they protect the ant. Exactly, because they, they think... And, and the other interesting thing about Tibetan society showing how advanced it was along sort of the Buddhist educational agenda is they didn't have a big thing about worshipping their ancestors. They were only weakly racist, you know, they, in, in the sense that they didn't think their bloodline was the sort of main human thing, as, which is racism, you know, in the sense that Grandpa might be reborn as, uh, as this, my pet dog. You know, <laughs> Grandpa might be reborn as my neighbor, you know, rather than Grandpa's waiting in heaven for me to do an ancestor ritual like they do in China or India or Japan or Korea, right. you know, or Mongolia for that matter. In other words, they, they, have, they have the weakest type of ancestor concern, much less than wasps, you know, here in America. You know, you go in the front door in Boston of a wasp family, you see pictures of these grizzly-looking quailers and old pirates and whatever, or in the South, plantation owners, you know. So the people think their own family lineage is a big thing, and that's the root of kind of, you know, you know, I have, you know, lost blood, I have Jewish blood, I'm an American, I'm a Mexican. You know, people get into nationalism, racism, from Buddhist point of view. And the Buddhist thing where you have the impersonal causal process of a biological process, and where your ancestors are still active in life around you, you tend to, your race, your sense of being special tends to diffuse itself on people around you, and it's a good antidote, actually, to racism. Also, you could have been reborn as a female in previous times, and you might be in the future, so sexism, it sort of erodes racism, sexism, nationalism, etc., you know? Absolutely. And I, I, one of the things you said also, just if I could just, changing now to the future of Tibet-China relations, you said that President sure. Xi had, had known His Holiness as a, when President Xi's obviously father was a senior official in the Chinese government years ago, and he'd actually met the Dalai Lama. And you had some optimism yes, that that would... Well, uh, nobody knows that for sure. Even Dalai Lama does not remember clearly if his friend, whose name was Xi Zhongxiong, you know, the Chinese first name is the last name, you know, so Xi is the family name. So Xi Zhongxiong was the name of the father. Xi Jinping is the name of the president now. So, it was, so his father, he was close with that official who was very nice with him and liked him a lot and later was very friendly with the pension lama. And later, after the Mao had, and Zhou Enlai died, uh, you know, tried to get Deng to be nice to the Tibetans and the minorities in general and was close to the more democratic-leaning Chinese official called Hu Yaobang, who was the one who the students made Tiananmen Square protest about. Oh, sure, yeah. And Xi Jinping's father, Xi Jinping's father was involved with that guy very closely and with the Dalai Lama. So I'm theor I simply theorize in our book that we made about the Dalai Lama, uh, the, the illustrated biography of the Dalai Lama, that the, the father was likely to have brought his one-year-old baby with him to visit the Dalai Lama when the Dalai Lama entourage was living for 11 months in Beijing and had a sort of surreptitious blessing, because as a communist, of course, he couldn't act like he wanted a blessing. <laughs> but he would bring his baby and show off his son, it seemed to me. So Xi Jinping, although he wouldn't remember it, I'm sure either, may have had a blessing from the Dalai Lama when he was a one-year baby. He was born in 53, and Dalai Lama was there in 54. So you're actually... You're actually fairly optimistic, then, as I understand it, along with His Holiness, about the future of Tibetan-Chinese relations. I am very optimistic, because, uh, and as I wrote before Xi Jinping in a, in a book called Why the Dalai Lama Matters, and before I did the, the one I did really before, the, the Man of Peace, which is the illustrated biography, and um, because I did never agreed with the view of, say, Kissinger and others, that the Chinese would lose face if they shifted around and were nice to the Dalai Lama and treated their minority people, the Tibetans, and even the Muslim Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang, if they started treating these people nicely and stopped trying to homogenize them and force them to be Chinese, 
which they don't want to be. And um, I, I, I disagree that that's a loss of face for them. And I, I, I argue, and I think persuasively, of course, with, with that, that they will be happy to be related in a positive, uh, you know, social and national way to China, or even be part of China, maybe a more loosely federated part of China. Uh, they'll be happy to do it if the Chinese respect them ethnically for their own ethnicity and their own culture and even for their own religion. You see, communism is so strange. Communism uh, was a anti-religious movement on the planet, you know, opiate of the people, Marxists, statement, etc. But actually what happened in communist countries was that uh, the anti-religious social system became the religion, and therefore you end up with Mao's sarcophagus as the shrine in Tiananmen Square, and Lenin still in Red Square, as if they were Jesus, you know, or Buddha. Right. And uh, therefore they, 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 they have this kind of religious, it's almost like a religious fanatic intolerance of other religions, and that's one of the things that keeps them from realizing that if they were very supportive of Uyghur Islam and let them have their mosques and let them bow to, to, to Mecca and even put one of their Chinese jumbo jets to fly them to, to Mecca once a year, some elders and things, that the Uyghur people would love the Chinese and get along and share their land with them and whatever resources. Well, of course, they would still maybe it would still not work if they were very harsh with them and they robbed their land and stuff, and and moved you know on top of them and kicked them into some slum. But but which, but they had to be you know keep treat them well. Which they have enough wealth to do, and they would love being part of China because the Chinese are very hardworking. You know, the Mongolian women like Chinese men because they don't drink as much. The poor, poor Mongolian women have to suffer alcoholic husbands who took up the habit from the Russians, you know, the vodka habit, because they were dominated by the Russians for so long, you know. Yes. And Chinese men are not that bad at drinking, and they work and save money. And, you know, so the, you know, Chinese have their really good side, creative, and they're, they have wonderful teachers and enlightened beings in the past. Confucius was an enlightened being in his own way, and Lao Tzu was, and many, many Chinese. And uh, the other people will admire them, get along with them, and enjoy their technical development that they've done, which has been wonderful. Dalai Lama loves it and supports it 100%. He was all for them to have their Olympics and all this kind of thing. But not nobody will like them if they're beating them up and trying to like, put them in a blender and grind them up so they'll become Chinese, which right. will never happen. People are really into being whatever they believe and believing what they believe, you know. And am I correct? Has the Dalai Lama ever been back to Tibet since he since he had to flee? No, no, visited? he's not been able to go. Of course, and he still can't go until they're more nice to him verbally. You know, some people think that it's it, Dalai Lama just can rush up there, but what he, they don't understand is that would cause a catastrophe, because the Tibetans will. Um, think, as long as the Chinese keep saying Dalai Lama is evil, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, he's a devil, he's the head of the snake of splitism and you know, separatism and all these kind of things, and they're pretending they don't believe him, that he wants to be part of a positive China, you know, and a China that cares for Tibet and takes good care of Tibet. It's, it's, it's prized possession, let's call it. And... Uh, and they pretend they don't believe it. Actually, the officials really know he is sincere, but they have a propaganda line where they pretend he, that he's not sincere and he wants independence. And uh, because that gives them an excuse of not talking to him, you know, which when the pre American president, intelligent American president, or European Union or Angela Merkel or something like that tells them, you know, you should talk to Dalai Lama and you can work it out and you won't have this embarrassment of the Tibet unrest and people feeling you're oppressive on Tibetans and therefore not trusting you like the Taiwanese to unify with you because you've shown that you're oppressive when you control another people. And you have instead you show that, well, maybe in the past there was some exaggerated oppression and now we like to be nice to them and elevate them and support their culture like the ancient Chinese emperors did. That's what we want to do now. If China made that switch, they would gain face worldwide. They would be loved, beloved by people. The Chinese president himself would get a Nobel Peace Prize for sure. I guarantee it. Although, unfortunately, I don't award it. 
<laughs> but I know their criteria, and they w- it would be such a turnaround of the way they have oppressed their minorities that they suddenly are being nice, and the, the way they are freaked out about religion. Once they were nice to the Dalai Lama, they'd have to be nice to the Pope. They'd have to unify the real Catholic Church and their own fake Chinese Catholic Church and stop trying to compete with the real Catholic Church in China. There are plenty of Christians there. And then the, the Baptists would run in there. There'd be, you know, they, but the Chinese were always good in religious pluralism. In the old days, they never had religious fanatic fights, almost never. They, they had some, you know, debates and disagreements, but they never got into, like, Europe, where they started killing people for another religion. They did not do that. And right. in the future, they could be a model society, and that, that's what they, that would make them the great world power that they want to be, where people would admire elements of their culture and respect them, and not fear them as being sort of predatory, conquering communists, which is what the current situation under the underneath the surface politeness, because we want to sell you something or we want to get some money from you, you know, which it, is it, what it is nowadays with the Chinese. You know? is, is it something? And like- I think Xi Jinping is intelligent enough, and he has enough power now in China, almost enough power now in China, to show the army and over everything to be able to shift their stupid minority policy to one that has a better public relations, soft power output. And that will be to the benefit of China, not to the detriment of China. It's, and for that reason, I'm optimistic, because it, finally they, what is my benefit, people might practically and realistically decide it's doing something intelligent. Is it something like a million, unfortunately, a million Tibetans have passed away since the occupation, something like that? Yes. Well, I mean, people normally do die, but over 1.2 million is a figure that is backed up by exit interviews and by other data that have were, were unnecessarily died. In other words, wouldn't have normally died at that rate. And some of it was from, not all of it was from military activity or, you know, concentration camp activity. Much of it was from famine but maybe half of it was from military and concentration camp activity in the early genocidal time of the Communist Party conquering peace by peace in the 50s, and then in the Cultural Revolution time in the 60s, uh, during those two periods, and early seven and 70s. During those 30 years, there was massive killing, yes. And there still now is a certain killing, but not at that degree. Can we, can we just talk about it? We're almost near the end, Professor Thurman, but just to talk briefly about Tibet House. I know you've said that... Uh, Richard Gere was a big help to you in, in starting Tibet House, obviously. And, he uh, was. I think and was. he remains a big help indirectly, but no longer, sadly, directly, because he, he, he always actually, Richard, before he met the Dalai Lama, he was always interested in Zen Buddhism. So he was interested in meditating after his first early Rat Pack days. And then, and then once he met the Dalai Lama, he, he did, at the Dalai Lama's request, uh, helped out with Tibet House for about five years, very, very, very well and nicely and generously. But uh, he always, from before that, he was sort of anti-contra campaigner. He was against the Illuminati. He was always a, like to do human rights and political, you know, agitating was his major, he, you know, to help people. That was his way he liked to help people. And so after about five years, uh, another Tibet support group, as we call it, which is not concerned like we are with the culture, but is concerned with the politics, uh, called the Campaign for Tibet, he shifted over and gave his main energy and effort to that in the, in the sort of early to mid-90s. And uh, he continued to do that since. So he's been very loyal and steadfast. So, and therefore, he's been a help overall still to us as part of the Tibet movement, but not specifically to our institution. His, mon- his specific dedication has been to the political one. Tibet House is not political. You know, we are not lobbying politically against the Chinese or for any, or for any particular way about the way Tibet should be. We are completely just trying to let people know about Tibet's beauty and importance as a culture, so people will want to preserve it. You know, like the motto of that group that Richard likes to work with is Save Tibet, which is great. Free Tibet, actually, maybe, and Save Tibet. And our motto is Love Tibet. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 people love it, and they realize it's a really neat thing, and it needs to live on the world and not be, like, ground up into China burgers. Then... Uh, then, then the Chinese will actually. The Chinese do love it even today, underground, kind of in mainland China, and very strongly in Singapore or Hong Kong or Malaysia, 
uh, that, you know, that all the lamas have many, many Chinese students and followers, and they love Tibetan Buddhism, which, which of course, they think of as closely related with Chinese Buddhism, although historically it has some differences. Yep. And actually it brings certain benefits. It, it expands and empowers Chinese Buddhism with and more technical aspects, Professor actually, Thurman, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. In the future it will. If someone, uh, we will see that. If somebody wants, that will be great, you know. If somebody wants that, that's to, my reasoning that it will it will I'm optimistic because this is in China's interest as well as in Tibet's interest and in the world's interest. If somebody that wants China to, learns to get along with people who are not exactly like them and not feel insecure and needing to just dominate and like, you know, control them in some oppressive manner. If somebody wants to help, Professor Thurman, uh, how can we contact Tibet House? Just go to the website if you want to donate yes, and support. It's TibetHouse.us or, and TibetHouse.org, and then they can go to 22 West 15th Street and visit the exhibitions there, and they can become members, and uh, that's great. And, uh, and in a way, they can do any Tibet support thing that they want, but they, we're particularly the hardest one to help because we're the culture. And like in every movement, people always think, well, economic development and political, you know, lobbying and agitating and protesting is the most important. And let them be more important. That's okay. And then after they are free and after they're saved, then they can be themselves. Just, you know? I just want one final question. Do you give classes yes. to, I, I understand you give classes on meditation and Buddhism, you yourself, Professor? I'm sorry, wait, wait I, you were breaking up there. I couldn't hear. Do you give classes yourself, Professor Thurman, in uh, Buddhism? And, and, Do um, I meditate? Yeah, meditate classes. Sh sure. I meditate. And, I'm always meditating, actually. And you give classes in that? Nowadays. I've been at it so long, you know. And do you give classes I, in that, too? Do, are there classes? Uh, I do give classes in med China meditation, but I'm like a little bit following my teacher, the Dalai Lama. I'm a little annoying in that I kind of want people to learn something as well. Okay. I'm not into just meditate and that will solve all your problems. I think that's a, that's a little bit misleading. Well, Although some people, maybe you can help them. It's like a tranquilizer can help them calm down that and help their blood pressure and even help their health. And in that sense, it's good. But from a spiritual point of view, without learning something, meditation has a limited benefit, actually. Well, well Professor Thurman, if you just become, you can become obsessed with it, and you can prevent yourself from learning, and that's, that's not a good thing. Well, Professor Thurman, we're basically out of time, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the program and okay, teaching us about well, Buddhism. Okay, great talking thank to you. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. And say hi to everybody, I okay? will. Thank you. Nice to talk family. to you. Have a good day. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. All the best. Thank you, Professor Thanks Thurman. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.